0: Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network.
1: Hello, welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I am joined by Ellie Mistal, who appears, well, he he seems momentarily distracted, but in a minute, I'm sure he's going to be irritated by something.
2: I'm just, I'm generally in a very good mood tonight. Ooh. Um, We are going to see, my wife and I are going to see The Matrix. Ooh, I don't want to spoil
1: it, but that Keanu Reeves guy is pretty important.
2: Yeah, I hear. Yeah. it's being re-released for its 20th anniversary for one week only, and so we, we have tickets to see it in the theater, which is important because unlike a lot of these fair-weather Matrix fans, we saw the Matrix in the theater, even though it was mm-hmm. not particularly well-hyped at the time or whatever. Um, but we saw it in the theater, um, but we got there late. Mm. So the whole opening sequence with Trinity running away from the agent, we didn't see that. We came into the movie when Neo wakes up for the first time, which was a bit confusing.
1: Yeah, I, <laughs> I could see. Yeah, no, but you've obviously seen it since. I've seen it.
2: I've yeah. seen it many times since. Okay. Um. So yeah. So we're gonna get to see that, and I'm in a pretty good mood because of that. I have something to look Excellent. forward to tonight. Well, that's very exciting. Doesn't mean I'm not angry about something though. Okay. Well, that's super. I'm angry this week, Joe, about bed bugs.
1: Oh, um, it's not. You're not mad about bed bugs. You're mad about one bed bug, I think,
2: in particular, yeah. right? For those who, for some reason, have been living in under a rock or haven't followed along,
1: it actually isn't that big a thing outside. Dude, of a week. it was
2: he was trending. He was number two trending on Twitter during the VMAs.
1: Well, which is amazing. Well, I I don't necessarily know as though that's true. Uh, you did you saw this in your Twitter? Uh, no, no, no thing. this
2: was like this was from Twitter Moments. Twitter Moments was telling people that Brett Stevens that's who we were talking about, mm-hmm. New York Times columnist Brett Stevens, was the number two trending topic on Twitter during the goddamn VMAs, mm-hmm. um, beating Lizzo and Taylor Swift, in any event. Um, so yes, unless you've been living on the rock, you've probably heard that Brett Stevens um, had a bit of a nutty. Um, I guess he came across a tweet from a university professor at uh, George Washington University, believe. The professor was tweeting about how there was a story about there was a bed bug problem in the New York Times newsroom. And the professor tweeted, the bed bugs are a metaphor. Brett Stevens is the bed bug. Mm-hmm. It didn't get a lot of li- – I mean literally got nine likes, no retweets. It was kind of you a know, dull prof metaphor joke, right? Somehow Brett Stevens became aware of this tweet. I, I don't know how you become aware of that unless you're the kind of guy who searches for yourself on Twitter. Oh, those people exist. Which is – you know, a one thing. So he, he somehow found out that this tweet was about him. Cause it's not like the professor tagged Brett Stevens. Like right. I talk shit about Brett Stevens and I tag him. Cause I am hoping that at least his assistant hears. Right. But this guy didn't even tag Stevens. Stevens found out anyway, sent a nasty gram to not just the professor, but CCing the provost of the university complaining about the tweet and challenging, um the professor to come to his house and call him a bedbug to his face. Stevens got slammed on Twitter. But of course, he's Brett Stevens. He doesn't give a fuck. So then he goes on MSNBC. I mean, he absolutely
1: does, right? If he didn't, his feelings wouldn't have been so so fragile. <laughs> like he absolutely cares. That's why he has a column searching for just his name
2: he he goes uh, on MSNBC and defends his attack of the professor defends emailing the provost and declares that he is quitting Twitter. He does this whole kind of like, you know, insects are what they used to call the Jews. He was trying to he's trying to hook himself into a Holocaust narrative, which is clearly not what was happening right. um, in the context of this particular bedbug tweet. But he tried to hook himself into it anyway. And then, of course – Declared he was quitting Twitter and and has deleted his account. I have problems with this on many levels, but the one that's getting overlooked to me. I mean, like, mm. people are doing it on the whole, like, Brett Stevens is such a goddamn white, fragile snowflake. He could not last being a week as an African-American or sure. woman on Twitter, which is absolutely true. I've written posts about the hate mail that I get. Like, it, it's not even comparable, right? Bedbugs would be such a step up. In terms yeah. of the kind of insults that I get, right, and and that, and I'm not even a woman, so many people have kind of explored the studio space on that. Um, what I feel is getting somewhat overlooked in this story is the rank freaking hypocrisy of Brett Stevens. Brett Stevens is one of these fucking Republicans who stomps around, who has basically made his career decrying PC culture yeah. and safe spaces on campuses and being angry whenever somebody, you know, a student, gets offended or annoyed by a professor who does like critically damaging work on racial social justice or just says incredibly stupid things about race or women's issues right brett stevens not
1: stupid incredibly uh, insightful things about them he gets mad
2: um he he will if if you are amy wax for instance sure brett stevens the guy you call to come and write a new york times column defending you Right. right. Like Brett Stevens fair. is the guy who will defend the Amy Waxes of the world from getting hell accountable or facing retribution for their comments and, and, and for their thoughts. So for him to turn around and then try to get this professor fired or at least in trouble by ceasing the provost over a freaking tweet that got nine likes, like the level of hypocrisy that you have to have in order to even fix your mouth to do that. Is just beyond
1: me. Right. So here's how it's not hypocritical, but it focuses actually on a more important question. So it's not hypocritical to the David Brooks, Brett Stevens people of the world because they believe and talk about their weird anti-political correctness yada yada and anti-safe spaces thing from a perspective that everyone needs to be more civil about what everyone else says they have this weird um this conception that is not based in any kind of reality other than their own of an idea of civility and they believe that safe spaces and trigger warnings those are all bad because those people should just be able to listen to Amy Wax say that you know black people can't pass tests and just respect that argument and fight against it in like a in a really a sterile hermetic way that's what they think and so when someone calls them a bedbug they don't see it as hypocritical because they say that violates those standards of civility the problem of course is that this sense of civility that is in their heads is purely in their heads and fully subjective to them it is a form of civility that only matters to Affluent middle aged white dudes, and that that's the center of civility, and anything that deviates from that is uncivil, and anything that is that is civil. That's their worldview, and so that's why it's not hypocritical because it opens from a premise that makes you know little to no sense outside of their own brain.
2: I think it's hypocritical, I think yeah. it's hypocritical because, and in, in also because when we're talking about Brett Stevens, we're talking about a man with one of the biggest megaphones in right. the country, right. He writes a weekly op-ed in the goddamn New York Times. He can say whatever he wants. His free speech is among the most protected form of speech that we have in this country. Versus rando political science professor at George Washington. Like when you are trying to use your immense speech backed up by the New York Times to get the provost of this guy's university to silence him on Twitter. It's just, again, it strikes me as rank hypocrisy on his part. The problem is hypocrisy implies some
1: level of disingenuousness. I don't think that these people (laughs) – these people don't see that because they begin from this idea that it – All of these things from your perspective seem like they're the acts of a pure hypocrite. The issue is they have a superstructure to the way in which they act, which is flawed and I would argue, somewhat evil, but it is nonetheless the superstructure they operate under, and through that superstructure, there is nothing inconsistent about these two positions. That is problematic and incorrect, but that's the world they live in, and that's a world that is buttressed by the way in which they get to go to the New York Times and write things uh, that people like me don't read because I haven't bothered to read any of these assholes in years. But... That's, so that's the uh, that's the long and short of bugs. So uh, good job on that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so cool. So before the show started, we were having a quick conversation. Apparently, there's an Indiana Jones five coming. So I thought,
2: I can't. What is it going to be? Indiana Jones and the Quest for the Plastic Diaper? Yeah. Like, what? Why would you do that? I I mean,
1: okay I, I you know,
2: leave Indy alone. Keeping let
1: intellectual him, property
2: fresh is a thing. Let him rest in goddamn peace mean like it just uh, the dearth of ideas in this country is is a whole is we could do it, it's a whole different show it's not a legal show but it's a whole different show on how we've completely obviously run out of ideas in this country that's not what i wanted to talk about mm. so my question and i have been asking this question kind of offline to lots of different people i haven't asked you mm. um yet and and I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this in terms of a potential article. So um, listeners, if you have thoughts, please uh, email me as well. Email us at tips at Above the Law as well, because I really am trying to think about how to talk about this. When, if ever, is it okay to criticize a lawyer mm-hmm. who is now running for office Okay. based on his or her representation of clients oh. while they were a lawyer? hmm Okay. We see this so often, I think, in our in our society right now, and it makes me, as both a person with legal training and a person who hates Republicans, it makes me feel uh, always a little bit uncomfortable. Okay, right to figure out exactly where the line is where you take a uh, David Boyce, right? Like okay. you take a representation of Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. that seems bad. Mm-hmm. By the same token. It seems critically important that the worst people in the country, including Mm -hmm. the Harvey Weinsteins of the world, have some of the best representation in the country because that's how we know when those people end up in jail, that's how we know it was fair. Right. Like that's a key part of our process that we have, we don't just want average lawyers, we want great lawyers defending the worst people in the world. Right. So that when we throw them away and take away their freedom and put them in quite frankly horrible conditions that really nobody should have to live in, when we do that to them, we at least know that they got the best process. Right. Right. But if I now have and that's fine, I can kind of live in that world if we're talking about lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. Like I don't have to. I have to vote for David Boyce for anything, right? Mm -hmm. But when I do, when a a person with a history of of representation then runs for office and then I have to decide whether or not I'm going to vote for them, then at what point am I allowed to look at their client roster and be like, "Mm, I don't agree with, with the people that you represented?
1: Yeah. Well, I think there are a few the, – the rubric that you have to use, there's, there's a few stages here. On the one level, the question becomes what kind of lawyer generally are you? Because I think there is something to be said for – regardless of individual representations, you can make broad generalizations about people who are prosecutors versus people who are public defenders versus people who went into nonprofit versus people who went transactional. Those may not be determinative, but you can – look at those broad decisions, because they say something about that candidate. So it's not necessarily bad that you represented X kind of person. But you can make some broad generalizations based on you made these choices. Now, those shouldn't be entirely determinative, partially because some people don't get to be public defenders, because they don't have the resources that, unfortunately, in this country, we kind of require people to have you know, significant family
2: money. Yeah, in order um, to take other income in order to take the low paying job that is
1: exactly so it can't be necessarily determinative. But I do think there's some broad decisions you can make over the kinds of people who choose to be prosecutors versus defenders versus transactional versus working just in civil litigation at large firms. So that's one one thing you can consider. I think you have to consider where people are in their career. The fact that I represented one of the banks that's involved in a lot of the Mueller-Russia investigation things when I was a second-year associate, probably doesn't say much about my worldview. It might say a lot about my worldview if I did so as a 10th-year partner, right? So where you are in your career matters, I think, especially not so much in the criminal case because there you're just kind of getting the people that you get. But in certainly in a civil situation, you are making decisions on who your clients are And so that probably should matter. And as far as the arguments you make, I think there's a level to which that can matter, but it's also not determinative. If you're a defense lawyer, making wild claims to save your client is part of what you said, the business of making sure that every idea was exhausted to make sure that if that person does go to jail, it was deserved. That said, if you're taking bold change the law, challenge the precedent sorts of stances in civil litigation, sometimes you're doing that, a lot of times people are doing that as, as a way of changing the law, not just for your client, but in ways that can have broader social effects. Those, those sorts of moves probably should be See, discussed.
2: Where I find myself getting further afield from most of my legal brethren mm-hmm. is that I actually care a lot about what kinds of arguments you're making right i think especially in the context of looking at um, potential judicial nominees okay like if you're the guy who's standing up saying like no absolutely children belong in cages because it's not a violation of the geneva conventions and it's not a violation if you're trying to right and the is amendment shouldn't if you're if you're trying to make all of these basically how let's be plain if you're fucking noel francisco the yeah. current Solicitor General right. of the sure. United States, whose job it is to defend Trump's crimes against humanity, if that's your actual job, and you make the kind of arguments that Francisco was willing to make, then I think that I should be allowed to look at you down the line and be like, no, 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 you can't be a judge. No, 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 you can't be a candidate, like not – because it's not just that you represent – your client, which is the government of the United States, is that you represented them along these batshit crazy legal arguments that no ethical lawyer should be making because you right. know they're wrong. Right, and and that that the question and that's i sort of saying. That's where I go a little bit further. A lot of people will basically give Francisco a pass. if, yeah, they're, if they're not right. going to give Francisco a pass, their issue is that he's. Choosing to still work there. Right. If they're willing to give him a pass on still working there, then they're willing to give him a pass for all the crap he says while working there. Right. And that's where I differ.
1: See, you know, I, I mean, it, it, this is not somebody who has a job because they, they, you know, they can't make ends meet. Uh, this is a big law partner would be able to go back to being a big law partner tomorrow if, at, he, if he wanted to. Um, at Jones Day. I mean, it, but this... This is the situation for people like – in that situation, there is, yes, he's not really locked in, and there's also the level to which the Solicitor General's office is part of the leadership group of the DOJ, meaning that this is a person who actually has a hand somewhat in the policy itself, which means that it is more than just someone making an argument. I would be more interested in the question of the line attorney at DOJ who has to make these arguments who's just a – random few years out of law school person. Like the woman who
2: said they didn't have
1: toothbrushes? Right. So that, that person, for instance, is in a different situation in my mind. And while I do enjoy trolling the level to which she was fully unprepared for how hostile that bench was going to be, the idea that she had to make those arguments as part of her job wasn't necessarily, you know, the sort of thing that I would blame her for on the ground, assuming she had some way of not working there. Because that's not a situation where she's part of the leadership group making these decisions she's just doing what she did and arguably doing it so badly that she guaranteed that it wouldn't work so hey maybe maybe she's a quiet hero here ah, ah, come on but i mean she's been doing i mean these she's been making these arguments like a lot of people tie this to the trump administration these particular arguments are about the obama administration who also was doing all these horrible things to immigrants it's just that the separation of families and stuff like that that the Trump folks have done have pushed this to a new level. But the detention centers and the bad conditions predates that. And so, yeah, she's actually a career attorney who's been there since long before this administration and could well be for long after. Who knows? But those are the people that I'd be a little bit more questioning where they fall, and I think it would depend on how much I felt like they could – Say no to the arguments that they have to make as part of the advocacy.
2: Can't all of them say no? Yeah. Everybody working at the Justice Department right now could get a job somewhere else. Every single freaking one of them. I don't know. I, that, well, not that's now not now because like they're because they have been, I think, rightly marked with the stink of Trump on them. No, but certainly I mean, before. Not the career people. The career. Well, if the career people wanted to get another job, they could.
1: Not really. Um. Not necessarily.
2: It's. It is a difficult market. Walk, work for the Justice Department or live under a bridge. That's what you're saying their choice is.
1: No, I'm not necessarily saying that's their choice. I am saying, though, that the the fluidity of the labor market for attorneys directly out of the DOJ is not as good as you would think. It is better. I mean, it's certainly better to come from there than it is from a lot of places. But that's not to say that everybody can just pull up stakes and end up at a big law job tomorrow.
2: There's, you know, there, I mean, the markets. I'm not tight. saying a big law. Jo- I'm saying they could all get another job. None of them are working at Costco after they after they quit.
1: Right, but you also you of all people recognize and have written about before the kind of golden handcuff situation that people are put in. These are folks, a lot of times they might be on public interest loan repayment situations where they have to work, work for government agencies, which makes it also harder, especially in this situation. They might be, unable because of benefits situations, not able to leave the government job at this point because they could be without healthcare that does what they need it to do. There's a there are factors. And I'm not saying that this lets well, everybody off. But I think that you're glibly putting all of them in the same place as a Noel Francisco, which I think is problematic. And I understand the analogy to like, you know, I was just following orders is not a good excuse for war crimes. But this, again, is legal advocacy and not, you know, an actual, you know, button pusher. This is, this is part of what you were saying earlier. People have to make these arguments so that we know that they're right. And... That's where I, they
2: sit. I, I, again, that's where I that's where I go a little bit further. I do think they're a lot closer to button pushers than mere functionaries. I but do they think don't they order things. All, I do advocates. think they can all get other jobs? But but like, and I do think that supporting an administration that commits these kinds of crimes and commits and has they make this kind arguments, of arguments, they
1: don't they don't dictate things. They're not, they're not gods, despite what some people like to say about the unitary executive. They don't get to do things. They just get to make arguments that then panels of judges can say don't make any sense. That's all they're doing. And in that case, I'm not particularly willing to say that the lowest of the low level are per se not able to, you know, problematic on that grounds. I think the Noel Francisco is a very different situation, a guy who's in the leadership group developing policy.
2: What about people who are working on? You know, what's we're looking for? What about what about people who are defending in the criminal justice system? Clear sexual predators, sexual harassers. Yeah, those
1: kinds of people. I mean, again, that that goes to what you were saying earlier about part of the criminal defense side is taking on unpleasant clients. I've always thought that the but I'm, right. Yeah. I'm saying, could you vote for them? Depends on how and what those situations were. Uh, I feel like there's a difference. And one of the things I've written before about the Weinstein case, actually, and the difference between there was a point where like Lisa Bloom was attached to the case very, very briefly before pulling out. And I wrote an article kind of exploring why that's different to me than some other lawyers who've been involved with Weinstein representation. And it was more about the lawyer as a business person than it is the lawyer as some ethical agent. I don't think there's any reason why, as a attorney, Lisa Bloom couldn't have done that representation. I feel, though, as a woman who's built her career on representing victims, that representation now undermines her credibility to do her job and to be the advocate she wants to be. That's why she couldn't do it, in my mind. So to that said, I feel like it depends. If you're representing, you know, sexual predators because you represent lots of Bad clients, and that's just one you get, is very different than somebody who builds their their practice, who builds around, their practice around I try to represent you know men who've been accused of whatever. These little nuanced differences actually matter because when you're when you're staking your business around the idea of you know I represent these kind of people, it is different than just in the normal course representing those people.
2: I wrote a post, um, I think almost six or eight months ago. About the man's law firm, there's yeah, a, there's a law, exactly. f- law firm, a uh, divorce law firm that that is very that their entire advertising is very much based on defending the man in divorce settlements, and so like their advertising, you know, features a gold digger who's clearly trying to get their money, or um one of the one of the ads has their their successful client getting a girlfriend who is you know half his age. It's very like cis hetero bro man representation um and i thought and i you know i i found it offensive but also like a legitimate business strategy like i got the business strategy behind the law firm there are men who feel like this in divorce situations
1: sure it's a business strategy but but to your point those are people that i probably wouldn't vote for thank you yeah because yeah because that they've made now a a business decision that betrays something about their beliefs that I think is different than they just are dyed in the wool criminal defense attorneys who are take clients as they come that's a that's a difference and I understand that it's probably a difficult one for somebody who is not a lawyer to Grasp that distinction, but it's one that at least I have, and I think seems like you and I both share on that
2: level. Now, if a Republican was here, and I'll note they're not, but if a Republican is here, they would say the same thing that we're saying about the man's law firm or whatever for a lawyer who built their career defending terrorists.
1: Sure, although you know, I mean, that's that's a weird one since a lot of the people defending terrorists are military lawyers at this point because we pushed all that to military (laughs) commissions. However. Putting that aside, I and mean, it's their literal job, is they're ordered to do that, but put that aside. I think that you could say that sort of thing. I mean, certainly they will. I think that more likely what they would do is try to make the same comparisons with people who happen to work for the ACLU or some organization like that. That says something. And in fairness to them, it does. If you choose to work for the ACLU, you are saying something about what you believe that you don't necessarily, if you happen to take on a free speech case while you're working at Clifford Chance or something like that, right? There's there's a difference there, and I get that, and it does say something about who that lawyer is.
2: I think terrorism defenders are, or, or or people do who well, really not def- not terrorism defenders, defenders. people Te- who defend, defend terrorists. yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. De- defend terrorists, yeah, that's that's thank very you. different. Thank
2: you, thank you, that's <laughs> very different. Um, kind of, that's a very different line of work. I, I do think people who defend terrorists are doing some of the most important work in our in our system. Right. Um, I think for that, the reasons you've I think outlined. that defending the lowest of the low, um, and the, the the most depraved people. I think doing that work is just some of the most important work that we have. Um, and I would never kind of negatively. I would never assume, and maybe that's part of what, what the where my sliding definition is. I would never assume that a lawyer who has a roster of clients who are accused of terrorism supports terrorism. I would never assume that. I would assume that they do not support terrorism, but they have all these systemic reasons for it. I would assume that if you have a client roster full of men who have been accused of raping people, that you're a rape apologist. I would would make that assumption. And maybe that's unfair of me, to make that assumption of those lawyers. But that is, I think that's where my mind goes. Like, if you have all of these clients, you're not doing it because you feel like these clients are being, you know, railroaded by the system or whatever. You're doing it because at some kind of core, you're a rape apologist and fuck you.
1: Yeah, I mean, those cases present a whole more granular question because you you can defend people in cases like that in ways that are particularly apologists and other ways that are more hyper-technical you could be saying Mm. no like we're we're staking our thing on he had an alibi and this happened and yada 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 and you know there was some questions about consent and these things and whatever or you could make your case on what she was wearing like those sorts of things and those the decision of how you approach the cases along that spectrum actually can say something about what your worldview is, too. That's a very granular analysis and a a harder one, I think, to get into if you're just trying to decide if someone can be a judge or not. But it it is probably fair to say that that is a distinction that if somebody really wanted to drill down, they could start making those claims on.
2: I think if you were looking at that, why wouldn't you look at that level of granular detail if you were thinking about a lifetime appointment for a judge, right? Right. And I mean, I I hate to
1: be be this guy, but there's also something to be said for when they made these arguments, too. Unfortunately, I, I, I'm not saying that people should hmm. get off if they did these things in the 80s when it was wildly acceptable, but I am saying that if there was a, a point in, like, 1990 where they stopped doing that and never did it again, I'm willing to say that a change has occurred. Whereas uh, I think... Sometimes with some of the re-op research I see on folks, whether it's judges or politicians, there's a, can you believe this stance was taken at this long ago date? And I say, that's awful, but does that person continue to repeat that behavior now or not? And I do take that into account because I think there is something to be said for bad things are always bad things, but... If you reform, I'm willing to give you a little bit more benefit.
2: Look, I believe in the disavowment, right? Like I'm even, I guess, more strong than you are on this. Like mm-hmm. I, I proactively believe that if people who have done bad things or made bad arguments or said bad things, to the extent that they are able to proactively say that what they did back then was wrong, they understand that it was wrong and they are they have never done that again. You know, it was either it was a one off thing or was something kind of specific to the time. Um, I'm at least willing to hear that argument. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like the the now what I'm not willing to do is the blackface thing. Right. Like when when Ralph Northam, the governor of Virginia, is just like, I didn't know the blackface was a thing. Yes, you did. It was 1982. You asshole. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I, I am I am I am resistant to arguments that are. It was just the times I was living in when even in the times you were living in, you right. could have known better.
1: Well, and I think that's, that's right? key, yes.
2: But I am amenable to the argument that over time, I have learned better. Right. And now do not do this thing that I shouldn't have been doing back then either. Agreed. But certainly now, I ha- and I haven't done it from some... Obvious point where I learned that was before right. I was asking for your vote, right? Yeah, so exactly in your situation, in your, in your yeah. analogy, if you've got a person who did these things or said these things or made these arguments in the 80s and then in 1991 was just like, you know what, yeah. I don't really gonna do that anymore, and then in 2021 right. wants to ask for my vote, I'm like, okay, yeah. I can, I have 20 years of you not doing this thing. Right. Right, I can I can work with that. Right,
1: yeah. I and I think I think the totality of the record does matter, and for all the the things you said, and like uh, an important point that you made that I hadn't made earlier, which is that change has to happen some considerable time before they decide to run. I right. think that otherwise it right. seems a little disingenuous. Right. That's fair. Cool, but I mean, I think to summarize this conversation, there's I feel when I talk about lawyers' records. I feel there's a cadre of attorneys out there who straight-up believe it's absolutely off-limits to question somebody in the process of being an advocate for what they did. Eh, it's lawyers doing what their job is, you just don't understand, and that's not true. I don't think that that's the issue. I think that there are decisions that get made by lawyers that go beyond just being an advocate, and that and those are fair game even if the individual act of representing people along the course of a career should not necessarily
2: be and i think client i think client choice matters i think when you have and i think it is important i think what you've said is important it's important to distinguish the people who have choice and the people who don't because right. not everybody who looks like they have choice actually had a whole lot of agency there but when you are at the point where you have some agency over what clients you have then i think the clients you choose to represent says something about you, maybe not a dispositive thing about you, but it certainly says enough about you that's worth asking a question. It's worth, worth yeah. asking a follow-up. Oh, definitely a question. It, it's it's worth asking. You know, why you chose to represent these clients? Maybe that's you fine. have a good reason. Maybe you don't. I'm allowed to ask if you're going to ask me for my vote.
1: Yeah, I just think that like if you're, if it's somebody in the grand theme of we're we're criminal defense lawyers and we defend people who commit all sorts of crimes, is very different than the man law firm, for instance. And I think that. That kind of a distinction matters to me. I also think uh, one of the recent stories that where an issue similar to this came up and I got similar flack was the uh, Harvard situation where a professor who like was in a job that required him to be kind of a, a go-to for folks who felt like they might have been attacked or something decided to take on a Weinstein representation and Go Harvard ahead. was like, you, you can't have this job anymore. And people flipped out about like, yeah. oh, That's the the whole legal enterprise is based on people being able to get good lawyers. It's like, yes, it is. But this particular Harvard post he had required him to not be publicly making arguments that undermined his ability to do this job. That is not to say that he should be fired from being a professor because he takes on this case. He just cannot do this particular dorm job that he had. And that's that's fine. You have obligations to different people, and you can't— sometimes that means you can't take every case you want to. But, yeah— a lot of people tried to come at me with "you just don't understand." Like your lawyers have to take on clients as they come, and it's like no.
2: There was also some some racial ambiguity there. Um, well, right, where he was, you know, was he being pushed out because of his representation of Weinstein? Or was he being pushed out because he was the first black person in that position at that particular dorm? Uh, and yeah, you know, so there was there was lots going on with him. But I, I fundamentally, and I said online, like I fundamentally agreed with your take that, as you say, like. They were the thing about Weinstein too, right? It's just such it's such a glaring hot nuclear button, right? Like don't just don't touch it, just yeah. don't touch it. There are other people. There are more than enough people. Weinstein has more than yeah. enough money to pay more than enough people to like get his stink on them, right? Yeah. Like you don't have to volunteer for that particular duty, you know? Yeah. Fair enough. All right.
1: I think we've. We've pushed this – I think there will be an upcoming article probably from you on this subject that probably sums up a lot of what happened. We haven't
2: pushed this as far as the Indiana Jones franchise.
1: We haven't. (laughs) And that was an amazing callback. So anyway – I want to thank everybody for listening. I hope you are all subscribed so you get these when they come out. You should also give reviews, write something up. It helps us move up that algorithm. You can read above the law all the time. You can follow us. I'm at Joseph Patrice. He's at LENYC. We are also, uh, members of the Legal Talk Network and you should listen to other shows as part of that network. You should check out the Jabot, which is another above the law podcast. And with all of that, I think we're done and we will talk to you soon.
2: We have a sponsorship opening. Oh, yes, true. Yeah. <laughs> please. Thru- yeah.
1: Bye.
0: If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit legaltalknetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook.